You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Transforming the Soul. This is Volume 1. Translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. This is Lecture 5 entitled Human Character, given in Munich on the 14th of March, 1909. The words Goethe wrote after contemplating Schiller's skull are very impressive. Goethe was present when Schiller's body was removed from its provisional grave and taken to the royal vault in Weimar. Holding Schiller's skull in his hands, Goethe believed he could recognize in the form and cast of this wonderful structure the whole nature of Schiller's spiritual being, imprinted here upon matter and he was inspired to write these beautiful lines. Quote, what greater gift can life on man bestow than that to him God-nature should disclose? How solid to spirit it attenuates, how spirit's work it hardens and preserves. Quote. Those who understand Goethe's feelings on this occasion will easily turn their minds to all those phenomena where something inward is working its way to manifestation in material form, in curves and lines and other external ways. We have a most eminent example of this form-making, this manifesting of inner being, in what we call human character. For human character gives most varied and manifold expression to what we see appearing again and again in different ways. For we think of human character as having a basic consistency. Indeed, we feel that character is inseparable from a person's whole being, and that something has gone wrong if their thinking, feeling, and doing does not in some way come together as an harmonious whole. We speak of a split in a person's character as evidence of a real fault in their nature. If in private life, people uphold some principle or ideal and then in public life say something contrary to it or at least discrepant, we speak of a break in their character, of their inner life falling apart. And we know very well that this can bring people into difficult situations or may even wreck their lives. The significance of a split in a person's being is indicated by Goethe in a remarkable speech he assigns to Faust words that are often wrongly interpreted by people who believe they understand Goethe's innermost intentions. Quote, Two souls, alas, are pent within my breast, to tear themselves apart, forever striving. One, in pursuit of passions, crude delights, clings close with avid senses to the world. The other, thrusting earthly dust away, aspires to rise to longed-for higher realms. This divided state of the soul is often spoken of as though it were a desirable achievement, but Goethe certainly does not say so. 
On the contrary, the passage clearly shows how unhappy Faust feels in that period under the pressure of these two drives, one aspiring toward ideal heights, the other to earthly things. An unsatisfying state of soul which Faust has to overcome, that is what Goethe is describing. It is wrong to cite this schism in human nature as though it were justified. It is something that has to be surmounted by the consistent character we must strive to achieve. If we now wish to look more deeply into human character, the facts described in previous lectures must be kept in mind. What we said about the nature of reverence, for instance. We must also remember that the human soul embracing the inner life of man, is not merely a chaos of intermingling feelings, concepts, passions, and ideals, but has three distinct members, the sentient soul, the lowest, in the middle the rational or perceptive soul, and the highest, the consciousness soul. These three soul members are to be clearly distinguished, but they must not be allowed to fall apart, for the human soul must be a unity. What is it then that holds them together? It is the ego. It is what in the true sense we call the human, capital I, the bearer of our human consciousness of self, the active element within our soul, which plays upon its three soul members as a musician plays upon the strings of an instrument. And the harmony or disharmony which the ego calls forth by playing on the three soul members is the basis of human character. The ego is indeed something of an inner musician who, with a powerful stroke, calls one or other soul member into activity, or it is the effects of their combined influence, resounding from within a human being as harmony or disharmony, that make their appearance as the actual basis of character. Of course, this is no more than an abstract description, If we are to understand how character actually occurs, we must enter somewhat more deeply into the whole of a person's life and being. We must show how the harmonious or disharmonious play of the ego on the three soul members sets its stamp on a person's entire personality and how this manifests outwardly. In human life, as we all know, we alternate between being awake and being asleep. When human beings go to sleep at night, their feelings, pleasure and pain, joys and griefs, urges, desires and passions, their perceptions and concepts, ideas and ideals, all sink down into indefinite darkness, and their inner life passes into an unconscious or subconscious condition. What has happened? This will be clear to us if we bear in mind the complicated nature of the human being. We shall have to run through this in rough outline again today so that we shall be able to grasp the whole nature of character which forms our human foundation. The part of the human being that is related to the sense world, what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands, is what spiritual science calls the physical body. And the element that animates and works within the physical body, preventing it between birth and death from becoming a corpse, and obeying the inherent physical and chemical laws, is what spiritual science calls the etheric or life body. 
our outer human nature consists basically of the combination of physical and etheric body. Then there is a third member of the human entity, which is the bearer of all that sinks down when we go to sleep into indefinite darkness. We call this third member the astral body, and it is the bearer of all the emotions that surge up and down in the soul. And within this astral body is the actual center of our being, the ego. In a normal person, this astral body is then further membered into sentient soul, rational soul, and consciousness soul. As we said, when human beings go to sleep, their physical and etheric bodies remain in bed, while their astral body, including the sentient soul, rational soul, and consciousness soul, withdraw, as does the ego. During sleep, the astral body and ego are in a spiritual world. Why do human beings return every night to this spiritual world? Why do they have to leave their physical and etheric bodies behind? There is a good reason for it. We can realize what this reason is if we look at the following aspect. Spiritual science tells us that the astral body is the bearer of pleasure and pain, joy and grief, instincts, desires and passions. This is all very well. But are these not precisely the experiences that sink into indefinite darkness on going to sleep? Yet it is asserted that the astral body and the ego are in spiritual worlds. Is there not a contradiction here? Well, the contradiction is only apparent. The astral body is indeed the bearer of all the inner experience that surges up and down in the soul during waking hours. But in human beings, as they are today, the astral body cannot perceive these experiences directly. So that the astral body and the ego can perceive their own experiences, they are dependent on these experiences being reflected outwardly. And this can only happen when on awakening in the morning, the ego and astral body come back into the etheric and physical bodies. Everything people experience inwardly, their pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, is reflected by the physical and etheric body, especially the etheric body, as from a mirror. Just as we see ourselves in a mirror, we see what we experience in our astral body in the mirror of our physical and etheric bodies. But we must not suppose that this soul life, the soul witnesses from morning till evening, requires no effort to sustain it. The inner self, the ego and astral body, the consciousness soul, rational soul and sentient soul, all have to work on the physical and etheric bodies, so that through the reciprocal interaction of these inner forces on these outer bodies, the surging life of the daytime is engendered. This reciprocal interaction involves a continual using up of soul forces. When in the evening we feel tired, this means that we are no longer able to draw from our inner life a sufficiency of the forces which enable us to work on our physical and etheric bodies. When we are nearing sleep and the faculty that requires the most intensive effort of spirit to work on the physical body, the faculty of speech begins to weaken. When sight, smell, taste, and finally hearing 
the most spiritual of the senses, gradually fade away, because we are no longer able to draw on our inner forces to sustain them, then we see how these forces are used up through the day. Where do they come from, these forces that are worn down during the day? They come from our life during the night, from the state of sleep. During the life the soul leads during sleep, it absorbs to the full the forces it needs to present us as though by magic with daytime life. During the day it can display its powers, but it cannot in the daytime draw on the forces it needs for recuperation. Spiritual science is of course familiar with the various theories advanced by external science to account for the replenishment of the forces used up by day, but we need not go into that now. So we shall say that when the soul returns from sleep into waking life, it brings with it from the land that is, so to speak, its spiritual home, the forces it needs to build up the soul life it conjures up before us. So now we know what our soul brings with it from the spiritual world when it wakes up in the morning. But let us ask about the other direction now. Does the soul, when it goes to sleep, take anything with it when it goes into the spiritual world? Yes, and if we want to understand what it is that the soul takes with it into the spiritual element of sleep, from the external world of physical reality, in which all the time it is awake, it goes from one experience to the other. We must above all take a good look at the way a person develops between birth and death. We see this development in that people grow more mature, gain more life experience and worldly wisdom, and acquire certain abilities that they did not have when they were younger. The following example will convince us that people do indeed take things into themselves from the outer world and transform them in their inner being. Between 1770 and 1815, certain events took place which were of great significance for world evolution. These events were witnessed by all kinds of people, and whereas they made no impression at all on some of them, on others they made such a deep impression, and these people acquired so much life experience and practical wisdom that in their soul lives they progressed to a higher stage. What actually happened? This is best illustrated by a straightforward example from life. Take the process of learning to write. What actually happens for us to be capable of putting pen to paper and expressing our thoughts in writing? A great deal must have happened. A whole series of experiences, from the first attempt to hold the pen, making the first stroke, and so on, through all the efforts that lead at last to really understanding how to write. If we recall everything that must have happened over months, years even, all we went through, perhaps by way of punishment and correction, until at last these experiences were transformed into knowing how to write, then we realize that these experiences were being continually recast and remolded until they became, in essence, the ability to write. Spiritual science shows us how to how it happens that a series of experiences coagulate, as it were, and become a faculty. 
It could never happen, however, if human beings did not continually pass through sleep. In daily life we find that when we try hard to remember something, the process of imprinting and retention is considerably aided if we sleep on it. It then becomes our possession, and this happens throughout life. Our soul has to engage with it, become one with it, so that it can coalesce and be transformed into a faculty. This whole process happens during sleep. We take with us at night the part of our external experiences that can be transformed into faculties, into forces, and this is a great enrichment of life. Present-day consciousness has little inkling of these things, but in the time of ancient clairvoyance they were well known. An example will show how a poet once indicated in a remarkable way his awareness of this transformation process. Homer, who can rightly be called a seer, describes in his title Odyssey how Penelope, in the absence of her husband, Odysseus, was besieged by a throng of suitors. She promises them that she will give her decision when she completes a piece of woven fabric. But every night she undoes what she has woven during the day. If a poet wants to indicate how a series of experiences, such as those of Penelope with her suitors, is to be prevented from becoming a faculty, in this case a decision, he must show how these experiences, the day's weaving, have to be undone at night. Otherwise, they would without fail coalesce into the faculty of making a decision. People possessing today's consciousness may think such things sound like hair-splitting and that ideas are being put into the poet's head. But really, great human beings were always people whose work incorporated mysteries of cosmic dimensions. And many people today who talk glibly of originality and so on have no inkling out of what depths the truly great artistic achievements came. So we see how daytime experiences that we take into sleep are transformed into faculties and forces, and how this helps the soul to move on in the life between birth and death. But further observation of our evolution between birth and death will bring us to recognize that this is, nevertheless, confined within certain narrow limits. We can indeed work at enhancing our faculties. In a later period of life, we can acquire qualities of soul which we lacked earlier on. But all this is subject to the fact that we can accomplish nothing that would require us to transform our physical and etheric bodies. These bodies, with their particular aptitudes, are there from birth. They are as we find them. For instance, we can acquire a certain understanding of music only if we are born with a musical ear. This is a crude example, but it shows that transformation can fail, and that although our experiences can unite with our soul, we must renounce any hope of incorporating them into our physical body. Finding that our body has these limitations, and having to renounce during our whole lifetime, weaving these experiences into our bodily life, then, if we consider life from a higher standpoint, the possibility of being able to break free from this body and laying it aside 
must be regarded as an enormously wholesome and significant happening for our entire human existence. Our capacity to transform experiences into faculties is limited by the fact that every morning we find our physical and etheric bodies waiting for us. We do not part from them until we die and pass through the gate of death into the spiritual world. There, unhampered by these bodies, we can continue the process of transforming those experiences we had between birth and death that we could not embody because of our corporeal limitations. When we descend once more from the spiritual world to a new life on earth, then, and only then, can we take the forces we have woven into our spiritual archetype and give them physical existence by molding them into the initially soft human body. Now, at last, we can weave into our being those fruits of experience that we had accumulated in our previous life, but could not then embody into our being. Thus, death brings an enhancement of life. What actually passes through the gate of death from one life to the next is the actual inner being of man, the part that is working its way into existence as it moves on from one incarnation to another. Now, human beings do not only have this possibility open to them of working in a, so to speak, rough way on their flexible physical nature to embody what they were not able to embody in their previous life. They also have another possibility, namely of imprinting on their whole being certain finer fruits of foregoing lives. When human beings are born, their ego and astral body, including their sentient soul, rational or perceptive soul, and consciousness soul, are by no means featureless, but possess definite attributes and characteristics brought from previous lives. The cruder work, whereby the fruits of past experiences are impressed on the pliable physical body, is accomplished before birth. But the more delicate work, and this distinguishes humans from animals, is performed after birth. Throughout childhood and youth, human beings work into the finer organization of their inner and outer nature certain determining characteristics and motives for action brought by their ego from a previous life. While the ego thus impresses itself from within on its vehicles of expression, how it does it and what it does combine to form the character that is presented to the world. Let me read that again. While the ego thus impresses itself from within on its vehicles of expression, how it does it and what it does combine to form the character that is presented to the world. Indeed, the ego between birth and death works on the instrument of the soul, the sentient, rational, and consciousness soul, drawing forth from it the music of its working. The ego, however, does not stand apart from the urges, desires, and passions of the sentient soul, but takes them upon itself, becoming one with these emotions, as it also does with the knowledge in the consciousness soul. This is how it happens that human beings take with them through the gate of death the harmony and disharmony they have created in their soul members, 
and in their next life work them into their exterior members. What they have attained in one life is passed on to the next. And this is how human character appears to us to be determined, something inborn and yet something that gradually develops in the course of life. The character of an animal is determined right from the beginning. It is fully developed. And therefore an animal cannot work further on its bodily nature. Human beings have the advantage of appearing at birth without showing a definite character. But in the depths of their being, there are forces which come from previous lives and which work their way into their undeveloped outer being, gradually forming their character insofar as this is determined by previous lives. In one respect, then, human beings have an inborn character and in another this gradually develops in the course of life. Keeping this in mind, we can understand that even eminent personalities can make mistakes in judging character. There are philosophers who argue that character is inwardly determined and cannot change, whereas this applies only where attributes derived from a previous life appear to be inborn. It is this very center of the person which, working its way from their innermost core and giving a common stamp to every member of their being, confers a unifying character. This character reaches, so to speak, right into the soul and also into the external limbs of the body. We see this inner center flowing outward in such a way that it shapes everything in its own likeness, and we feel that it holds together the various members of the human being. Right into the physical body, the imprint of a person's inner being can be discerned. There was an artist who once made a wonderful presentation of something to which, as a theory, proper attention is not usually given. He demonstrates human nature at the moment when the human ego, the center which holds the whole human being together as a unity, is lost, and the limbs, each going its own way, strain apart in different directions. There is a large and famous work of art that records precisely this moment, when a human being has lost the foundation of his character, the very thing that holds his whole being together. This work of art has been frequently misunderstood. Do not imagine that I am about to level cheap criticism at people for whose work I have the highest respect. But the fact that even great minds can make mistakes in face of certain phenomena, just when they are most earnestly striving for truth, shows how difficult the path to truth really is. One of the greatest German authorities on art, Winkelmann, was impelled by his whole disposition to err in interpreting the work of art known as the Leokun. His interpretation has been much admired. In many circles, people have thought that nothing better could be said about this portrayal of Leokun, the Trojan priest, who, together with his two sons, was crushed to death by serpents. Winkelmann, full of enthusiasm for this example of the sculptor's art, said that here we are shown how the priest, Leokun, who in the movement of every limb demonstrates his nobility and greatness, is torn with anguish, above all the anguish of a father. He is placed between his two sons with the serpent coiled around their bodies. 
Conscious of the pain inflicted on his sons, he himself as a father is so agonized by it that the lower part of his body is contracted, as though pressing out the full degree of pain. We can understand the figure of Laocoon, says Winkelmann, when we realize that he is forgetting himself, as his blood is consumed with immeasurable pity for his sons. This is a beautiful explanation he gives of a father's ordeal. But if, just because we honor Winkelmann as a great personality, we look repeatedly and conscientiously at the Laocoon, we are finally obliged to say that Winkelmann must be mistaken. For it is not possible for pity to be the dominating motif in the scene portrayed. The father's head is aligned at such an angle that he cannot see his sons at all. Winkelmann's judgment of the group is quite wrong. The direct impression we get from looking at the group is that here the exact moment is being portrayed when the encircling pressure of the snakes drives the human ego out of Laocoon's body and the separate driving forces, deprived of the ego, each go their own way in the physical body. We see the head, the trunk, and the limbs each taking its own course, not brought into an individualized harmony with the outer gestalt due to the very fact of the ego's absence. The Laocoon group is showing us right into the effects on the physical body of the moment when a human being loses his unifying character, when, bereft of the ego, the strong central point which brings together the various members of the human organism. And if we allow this spectacle to work on our souls, we shall break through to the unifying element that enables all our limbs to work together as a whole and imprints on us what we call our character. But we now have to ask ourselves, if it is true that a person's character is to some extent inborn, if what we bring with us at birth cannot be changed beyond a certain limit, however hard we try, as every glance at life will tell us, is it possible, after all, that there is something we can do to alter our character to a small extent? Yes, insofar as character belongs to the life of the soul and is not subject to the bodily limitations we encounter every morning on awakening, it can be changed with regard to the way the separate soul members work together. And through a strengthening of the forces of the sentient soul, the rational or perceptive soul, and the consciousness soul. To this extent there can be further development of character during a person's personal life between birth and death. To know something of this is specially important for education, essential as it is to understand the temperaments and the difference between them, if one wants to be a proper teacher. It is also necessary to know something about human character and what can be done to change it between birth and death, even though it is in some measure determined by a previous life and its fruits. If we want to make good use of this knowledge, we must be clear that personal life goes through four typical periods of development. In my little book titled The Education of the Child in the Light of Anthroposophy, you will find further information on these stages. Here I am only sketching them in outline. The first period runs from birth to the beginning of the change of teeth around the age of seven, 
It is during this period that external influence can do most to develop the physical body. During the next period, from the seventh year to the onset of puberty, at about the thirteenth, fourteenth, or fifteenth year, the etheric body, particularly, can be developed. Then comes a third period when the astral body, the lower astral body especially, can be developed. And from about the twenty-first year onward, the time comes when human beings meet the world as, so to speak, free, independent beings and themselves work on the progress of their souls. Here, the years from twenty to twenty-eight are important for developing the forces of the sentient soul. The next seven years, up to the age of thirty-five approximately, are important for the development of the forces of the rational or perceptive soul, which we can develop best by interrelating with life. All this may be regarded as nonsense by those who do not take the trouble to observe life. But people who study life with their eyes open will know that certain elements in the human being are most open to development during particular periods. During our early twenties we are particularly able, through interrelating with life, to develop our desires, instincts and passions, and so on, through the impressions and influences we receive from our dealings with the outer world. We can feel an increase in our forces through the interaction of the rational soul with the environment, and anyone who knows what real knowledge is will realize that earlier acquisitions of knowledge were no more than a preparation for this later stage. This maturity, which enables one to survey and evaluate the knowledge one acquires, is not attained on average before the thirty-fifth year. These laws exist. Anyone who fails to see them is unwilling to observe the course of human life. If we keep this in mind, we can see how human life between birth and death is structured. The work of the ego in harmonizing the soul members and its necessary endeavors to impress the fruits of its labors on the physical body will show how important it is for an educator to know that the physical body goes through its development up to the seventh year. It is only during this period that influences from the physical world can work on the physical body, bringing its strength and power. And here we encounter a mysterious connection between the physical body and the consciousness soul, a connection which close observation can thoroughly confirm. If the ego is to become strong, so that in later life, after the thirty-fifth year, it can assert itself by means of the forces of the consciousness soul, going out of itself to acquire knowledge of the world, it ought not to be confined by the physical body. For the physical body can set up the greatest obstacles to the consciousness soul, and the ego, precisely if the ego is not content to remain enclosed within, but wants to go forth and have free exchange with the world. Now, since in bringing up children in their first seven years, we are, within certain limits, able to strengthen the forces of their physical body, a remarkable connection between two periods of life is apparent. Oh, it is not at all an insignificant matter for later life what the teacher can do for children. Anyone who is capable of comparing the early years of childhood with what occurs after the thirty-fifth year in the way of free exchange with the world 
will know that the best thing we can do for people is to bring them the right sort of influence during their early years. Whatever we can do to help children to find joy in direct contact with physical life, in the love that comes to them from their environment, will strengthen the forces of the physical body, making it supple and pliant and open to education. The more joy, love, and happiness we can bring to children during their early years, the fewer hindrances they will encounter later on, when their ego should be working in the consciousness soul, drawing forth a music from it that should be forming the kind of character in them that has an open interrelationship with the world. Anything in the way of unkindness, pain, or distressing circumstances that we allow children to suffer up to their seventh year has a heartening effect on their physical body, creating obstacles for them in later life. This will show itself in that they will be closed characters, their being enclosed within the soul, so that they will be unable to achieve a free and open exchange with impressions from the outside world. There are mysteries concealed in these life connections. To proceed further, on the one hand, there are connections between the etheric body and what can be developed particularly in the second period of life, and on the other hand, there is a connection between the etheric and the rational or perceptive soul. When the ego plays on the rational soul, It releases forces that can make human beings either into people of initiative and courage or into people who are cowardly, indecisive and lazy. Which way it goes depends on the strength of the ego. But even if people have the best opportunity to enrich the rational or perceptive soul through interacting with life and developing a particularly reliable character, they may encounter hindrances in the etheric body. If during the period from the seventh to the fourteenth year we supply the etheric body with forces that will produce no resistance in later life, that is, for those particular years between twenty-eight and thirty-five, we shall be doing something for children's education for which they are bound to be grateful. If during the period from seven to fourteen we can be an authority for children at the age when it is particularly beneficial and can give them trust in us and in the truth we represent, then we strengthen their etheric forces so that later on they will encounter the least possible obstacles in their etheric body. Then they will be able, if in their ego they have the disposition for it, to become people of courage and initiative. If we are aware of these hidden connections, we can have an enormously beneficial influence on people's lives. Our chaotic education has lost all awareness of these connections that were known instinctively in earlier times. So we can always feel relief when we come across what past educators, whether from profound instinct or inspiration, still knew about these things. Rotek's title World History, for instance, was found in our father's libraries. It may be out of date in some respects today, but if we approach it with human understanding, we encounter a special presentation showing that Rotek, who taught history in Freiburg, 
had a way of teaching that was far from dull and lifeless. You only have to read the foreword to see what an extraordinary spirit the book has. You have the feeling that he is fully aware that in speaking to young people of this age, between fourteen and twenty-one, when the astral body is developing, he must bring them into touch with what springs from descriptions of great ideals. He picks out from them as many examples as possible of events that can fill the young people with enthusiasm for the greatness of the thoughts of heroes, for the goals they followed, and for their striving and suffering in the course of humanity's history. And such an approach is entirely justified, for the influence of this age is of direct benefit to the sentient soul when the ego in free exchange with the world is working to develop the young person's character. All that has streamed into the soul in the way of great ideals and enthusiasm is imprinted on their sentient soul and embodied according to the person's character into the person's ego. We realize then that it really is so, that because the physical, etheric and astral bodies are to a certain extent still pliable in the young, and various sorts of influences can be introduced into them through education, this enables people later in life to work on their character. If the necessary assistance has not been given, it will be difficult for the character to be worked at, and the strongest means will have to be applied. In this predicament, people need to devote themselves very consciously to serious meditation on certain qualities of feelings which they consciously impress on their life of soul. They must endeavor to experience the content of religious confessions which can speak to us more than as theories and are actually cultural streams. Such people should devote themselves not once only but again and again to great philosophies which lead us through thought and feeling into the mighty, all-embracing cosmic mysteries. If they can immerse themselves in these secrets and do so willingly time and again, and these become impressed upon them in daily prayer, then with the help of their ego they will be able in later life to remold their character. The first essential is that the qualities acquired by and incorporated into the ego are imprinted on the sentient soul, the rational or perceptive soul, and the consciousness soul. On the whole, people are not able to do much to change their outer bodies. We have seen how they encounter a boundary in the physical body with its innate predispositions. Nevertheless, observation shows that in spite of this limitation, people can do some work on their physical body between birth and death. Who will not have noticed that human beings who devote themselves for a decade to knowledge of a really deep kind, knowledge that does not remain remote theory but is transformed into pleasure and pain, happiness and sorrow, thus becoming real knowledge and uniting itself with the ego, who will not have noticed that the physiognomy of such people, their gestures, their entire behavior have changed? showing how the working of the ego has penetrated right into their external appearance. The extent to which the outer body can be influenced by what they have gained between birth and death, however, is limited. 
For the most part, people have to resign themselves to keeping this for their next earthly life. On the other hand, the various attributes brought over from previous lives can be enhanced by working on them between birth and death, if the faculty for doing so has been acquired. Thus we see how character is not confined to the inner life of the soul, but penetrates into a person's outer appearance. It finds expression primarily in gesture, then in physiognomy, and thirdly in the sculptural shapes of the skull, of what we call phrenology. How then does character achieve this outward expression in gestures, physiognomy, and bone formation? The ego works formatively, first of all, in the sentient soul, which embraces all the instincts, desires, and passions, in other words, everything that belongs to the inner impulses of the will. The music the ego draws forth from this soul member and which shapes character is manifest externally as gesture, and this play of mime, of gesture springing from a person's inner being can tell us a great deal about character. Even though the ego is at this stage chiefly active in the sentient soul, the music it makes there nevertheless resonates in the other soul members, and this too is evident in gesture. The coarser elements of the sentient soul come to expression in gestures connected with a person's trunk. If, for instance, a man pats his stomach with a feeling of satisfaction, we can see how his character is restricted to his sentient soul and how volitions connected with his higher soul members come to expression hardly at all. When the ego, whilst dwelling chiefly in the sentient soul, resonates up into the rational soul, however, this is expressed in a gesture related to the human organ that serves the rational soul as its chief means of outer expression, which is here in the region of the heart. Speakers who have a hearty tone of conviction are given to thumping themselves over the heart. They are men who speak with passion rather than objectivity. Here we have the passionate character who, although he lives entirely in the sentient soul, has so strong an ego that his emotions resonate in the rational soul. We recognize him by his expansive attitude. For example, there are popular speakers who thrust their thumbs into the armholes of their waistcoats and swell their chests when they are facing an audience. Far from being objective, they speak directly out of the sentient soul, putting into words their egoistic feelings and reinforcing them with the gesture of thumbs in waistcoat armholes. When the note plucked by the ego in the sentient soul resonates as far as the consciousness soul, we see a gesture bearing on the organ that gives the consciousness soul its chief outer expression. If people find it particularly difficult to bring their inner feelings to the point of reaching a decision, they will lay a finger on their nose, a gesture indicating how hard it is for them to bring a decision up from the depths of the consciousness soul. Thus we see how everything imprinted on the soul members as the characterized work of the ego streams out right into gesture. 
We can see too that when people live chiefly in the rational or perceptive soul, this is apparent in their facial expression. The experience of the rational soul lies closer to their inner life, where things are determined more from inside, and people do not go around sighing over imagined infringements of their rights. If people are indeed capable of living in the rational soul but press down its content into the sentient soul, if any judgment they form gets hold of them so strongly that they glow with enthusiasm for it, we can see this expressed in the receding forehead and the chin that juts out. If something is actually expressed in the rational soul and only resonates in the sentient soul, This is expressed in the lower part of the face. If people achieve the special virtue of the rational soul, a harmony between inner and outer, so that they neither shut themselves off in inner brooding nor deplete their inner life by complete surrender to outer impressions, and if the work their ego does in the shaping of character is accomplished chiefly through the rational soul, this will manifest in the middle part of the face, the external expression of the rational soul. Here we can see how fruitful spiritual science can be for the study of civilizations. We are shown how successive characteristics are imprinted on successive peoples. The rational soul made its imprint particularly on the ancient Greeks, among whom we can discern the beautiful harmony between inner and outer that is the characteristic manifestation of the rational soul. And here, accordingly, we find the Greek nose in its perfection. It is true that we only understand these things when we see the outer physical imprint in relation to its spiritual background. Again, when people bring what lives preeminently in the realm of the rational or perceptive soul up into conscious knowledge and experience it in the consciousness soul, the physiognomical expression of this is a predominant forehead, as though the working of the ego in the rational soul were streaming up into the consciousness soul. People who live strongly with their ego, so that the character of the ego is impressed on their consciousness soul, can bring the note sounded by the ego in the consciousness soul down into their rational or perceptive soul and their sentient soul. This is a certain high point in human development. It is only in the consciousness soul that we can be filled with great moral ideals and by great wide-ranging conceptions of the world. All this has to come to life in the consciousness soul. But the forces the ego engenders in the consciousness soul so that it can acquire wisdom, great moral ideals, and noble aesthetic views can penetrate into the sentient soul and become enthusiasm, passion, the inner warmth of the sentient soul. Human beings can enhance the ego in this way by bringing noble aspirations down into the sentient soul. However, this character filled with ideals produced by the work of the ego in the consciousness soul may encounter obstacles in being imprinted into the physical body because of inborn predispositions. Then we have to practice resignation 
We may have the makings of a noble character, but we cannot incorporate it into our bodily nature in this particular lifetime. We have to take it through the gates of death, but then it will bring the most powerful forces to our next life. The ardent passions for high ideals that people have experienced in the sentient soul can be taken through the gates of death, and in the skull formation of their head in their new incarnation the bumps and hollows are an expression of the great moral ideals they have acquired. Right into their very bones we can see what human beings have made of themselves. So we have to realize that although a study of the bone formation of the skull can tell us about people's character, it is nevertheless a very individual matter. It is absurd to suppose that phrenology can lay down general schemes and typical principles. There can be no such thing. Everyone has a phrenology that applies to themselves alone, for their skull is shaped by forces derived from their previous life, and this must be recognized in every individual case. Anyone who knows about the formative forces that work into a person's very bones would speak only of recognizing their effect in individuals. The formation of the skull is different with everyone and can never be accounted for in terms of a single lifetime. In this matter of skull formation, we can take hold of what is called reincarnation, for in the contours of the human skull we can discern what people have made of themselves in previous lives. Here, reincarnation becomes a palpable fact. We need only know where to read the evidence of it. So we see how the effects of what springs from human character have to be followed from their origin all the way into the hardest of structures, and then human character appears to us as a wonderful riddle. We began by describing the way the ego impresses our human character into the formations of the sentient soul, the rational or the perceptive soul, and the consciousness soul. We then saw how the work the ego does there is impressed on the outer vehicles, right into gesture, physiognomy, and even the bones. And we see all the time how human beings are being led from birth to death and on again to a new birth, how their inner being works on the outer members, impressing character both on their inner life and the outer body, which is an image and parable of the inner life. So we can understand why it makes such a deep impression on us to see in the Leokun statue the bodily character falling apart into its separate members. In this work of art, the outward gestures show us in their way the disappearing of character which belongs to the very essence of, human, of a human being. Right here in front of us we have evidence of inner forces working into matter and vice versa. We are shown that dispositions brought from earlier lives are determining factors in any one life, and how the spirit, by breaking life up, enables newly matured traits of character to be brought as fruits into a new life. We can now be filled with a mood resembling Goethe's when he held Schiller's skull in his hands and said, In the forms of this skull I see how the spirit sets its stamp on matter. This form, so full of character, calls up for me the voice that I heard sounding through Schiller's poems and in the words of friendship he so often spoke to me. 
Yes, I see here the way spirit has been at work in the material realm. And when I look at this piece of matter, its noble forms show me how previous lives prepared the radiance that I feel shining forth so powerfully from Schiller's mind. And what we have been considering today enables us, now out of our own conviction, to repeat the utterance made by Goethe on contemplating Schiller's skull, quote, What greater gift can life on man bestow than that to him God-nature should disclose how solid to spirit it attenuates, how spirit's work it hardens and preserves? The end of Lecture 5